reeling from all the terrible news but not sure how to take action i'm kelly i'm lila and this is what can i do each week we interview activists about how they took action what got them started who helped them along the way and what they do differently next time in the process we offer concrete advice on how to take the leap from freaking out on twitter to making a difference so let's get started Hi, everyone. I am Kelly Pollack. This is What Can I Do, the podcast where we help you figure out what you can do wherever you are and wherever you're coming from. So I am here, as usual, with my co-host, Lila Nordstrom. Hello, Lila. Hey, Kelly. How are you? It's, you know, hectic, hectic season, but we're we're all hanging on. (laughs) Too true. Back to school, back to real life, post-summer. Back back to everything. (laughs) Exactly. Today, we have Angela Tyler Williams, the co-director of Movement Building at Sacred. We're going to be talking a little bit about activism in faith-based communities. And Angela, I'll let you tell us a little bit about what you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on. It is good to be with both of you today. So as y'all said, I am Reverend Angela Tyler Williams. My pronouns are she and her, and I am the co-director of Movement Building at Sacred, which is the Spiritual Alliance of Communities for Reproductive Dignity. And we are an alliance of organizers, religious leaders, academics, and congregations working together to advance the cause of reproductive justice through congregational designation and community building programs. And I come into that as a community organizer at heart and an ordained pastor in the Presbyterian Church USA. So I'd love to hear a little bit about how how you got into that. Uh, you know, you say at heart, but you're also ordained. So, you know, how... How did all of that happen? How does all of it come together? Yeah, I come into my political work as a Christian, as a pastor's kid, as children of second wave feminists who lived in intentional community and were doing cool liberation theology and non-toxic charity before, or was a buzzword in some religious spaces now. And really, I felt the call to be a pastor when I was really young. Um and felt this sort of second call to be to activism, advocacy, and community organizing. When I spent a year, the year after college, I lived in the Philippines as a volunteer and was on an island uh, called Leite just one year after Typhoon Yolanda struck. And if you don't remember, in 2013, Typhoon Yolanda struck, and it was at the time the strongest storm to ever make landfall. That's obviously been surpassed many times over as the climate crisis increases. But I was living with folks who were still trying to pick up the pieces of their lives and rebuild and find a home and was there one year afterwards and was with my host family and my host dad was the bishop. Um, And so we all came together for this ecumenical service and there were 20,000 people who showed up and it started as an ecumenical worship service. And they had said, you know, we've lost 12,000 people in this storm. And after that, you know, billions of dollars in pesos flooded their economy. But still, one year later, less than 1% of the displaced population had been permanently housed. And so this group was coming together to memorialize, to remember all of those who were lost. And that worship service ended with everyone in their fists in the air. And they went straight from worship into a protest march to hold their elected officials accountable. 
And that was sort of like a lightning strike moment for me of like, yes, you were called to be a pastor, but you were also called to be with people in the streets who are holding elected officials accountable, who are trying to make a change in their world, who are working for justice and for equitable living conditions for all people in the community. And that led me back to the United States um, and back to Washington, D.C. I did another year and learned about community organizing and saw pastors who were doing this work and learned about the rich history of clergy and congregations being on the front lines of the civil rights movement and all of these struggles for justice, equality, and dignity. And so that led me into seminary with this sort of dual call of being, yes, I'm going to be a pastor, but I'm also going to be an organizer and trying to bridge these things. And I got involved in a lot of different issues, you know, got started with climate change and did a lot of work around homelessness and affordable housing, was in Texas when uh, the 2016 election happened and saw a lot of immigration crises happen and so showed up on that. I came out as bisexual in seminary and then got involved in LGBTQ organizing with faith communities in Texas. And from that, got into and learned about reproductive justice, which is how I've landed here in sacred land. And, and reproductive justice, if folks aren't familiar with it, is a term coined by 12 Black women in 1994 that recognized that reproductive rights wasn't enough. Um, it wasn't going to get us quite the, the justice that we needed. And so the tenets of reproductive justice as defined by Sister Song, the Women of Color Reproductive Justice Collective, are one, the human right to bodily autonomy, two, the human right to have children, three, the human right not to have children, and four, the human right to raise the children we do have in safe and sustainable communities. And when I learned that definition, that really blew open my whole idea of what it meant to be a person of faith involved in activism and community organizing, and especially around abortion access and reproductive justice. I grew up in the mainline church, in the Presbyterian church, and I grew up politically pro-choice, but I never knew how to articulate a faith-based uh, theological understanding of abortion access as a moral and social good. And so this reproductive justice framework helped me to see that all of these other areas of issues that I'd been working on, fighting for justice, that they also were included in the reproductive justice framework. And, and so how could I separate off and say, well, we're going to support all of these issues, but when it comes to the question of abortion, mm, we can't quite go there. We're like, no, <laughs> we worship a God who is with us at every stage of our life as we make, make every decision. And of course, that is going to include the decisions we make in our reproductive lives as we decide to have children or not to have children as we decide how we're going to create families, as we decide who our partners will and will not be. So that is like a whole lot of everything of how I got into this work. I'm curious, actually, just pulling out one of the things that you said, if you could talk a little bit about the difference between engaging faith-based communities in political work and non-faith-based communities, sort of like, I'm sure that you not only sort of conceive of your messaging in different ways, you probably make different kinds of arguments. You probably uh, 
you, you probably engage with people in slightly different contexts. And so I'm curious if you could talk a little bit about what people might not know about those differences. Yeah, that's a great question. And the work of sacred is really invested in culture change. We recognize that the dominant narrative in this country is that if you are a person of faith, if you're a religious person, you are likely anti-abortion. And that's simply not true. That's not true for the that's not true for Catholic folks. That's not true for Protestants. It is true for a, a select few, you know, white evangelical Protestants. Yes, a majority of them are anti-abortion, but they are not the majority of people of faith or the majority of people in this country. But when we're working with congregations and communities of faith, you have to go at the speed of the congregation. And that is a really different speed than the political world, the political realm. We're not going on the speed of elections. We're not going at the speed of legislative cycles. And honestly, it's a gift to it can be a challenge also because we're like, where are the wheels of change? Why aren't they turning fast enough? But this culture change work, it requires so much time to really go dig deep and to un- to learn and question some of the things that we've received as messages, either implicit or explicit from our culture, from, from our congregational leaders. But it takes time to sort of undo some of those harmful messages, even if your church your congregation, whatever your faith is, didn't necessarily say something like the nature of dominant narratives is we still got the message that, oh, as a person of faith, I'm probably going to be against abortion. Well, why is that? Well, it's because people weren't saying it out loud. And so we do have to say things differently. And I think that's the other beauty of the reproductive justice framework is that there's space. And in congregations, there's space to hold a more nuanced view. Again, the, the speed of politics wants us to be polarized and say either or, and there's only that's yes or no, and there's only these two options, and that's all you've got. And honestly, those are a part of the binary thinking that upholds white supremacy culture. And so we've got to challenge that. And faith communities are there with and for people. So it, it's sort of different. You know, if you're at an abortion clinic, someone is showing up because they have a particular need for a particular kind of reproductive care at that moment. If you're in a congregation, you might have known someone and raised them in Sunday school through confirmation and religious education and and have married them. And then they come to, oh, now I'm making different kinds of reproductive decisions. Or you might be with them as folks are going through infertility treatments or they experience miscarriages. Like, there's a whole broad spectrum of life experiences and reproductive decisions that people make. And congregations are places where we can create and hold space for compassion, for courageous conversations. And that's really the work of sacred is creating and holding that space for congregations to have those courageous conversations free from shame, judgment, and stigma. So as you're starting to work with people who may not think of themselves as political, may not think of themselves as activists, or have actively thought that they shouldn't be those things, how do you help them sort of see their own their own ability to become advocates and activists for the change that they want to see? Yeah. The the gift of our faith traditions, whatever they may be, is that there is some vision of whether it's heaven, whether it's the the great beyond, whether it is tikkun olam, the repairing of the world, 
there is some vision of perfection, of a utopia, of liberation, of flourishing that we can point towards and, and we can be clear and we can recognize the world we're living in right now, isn't it? <laughs> we know the the types of suffering that all sorts of people and many communities in our society experience, but we have this this vision cast of a way that's different. And it's we say, well, we are called to live out and create a world that is different. We are called to co-create with the divine to follow the call of the spirit to to repair the the breach of these these rifts these divides that exist but we are called to to live into a better world to create a better future to bring out our better angels and when you can dig deep into some of those common shared values, when you can lean on the stories of the ancestors and elders that came before us, and we have stories in our sacred texts that show how people overcome oppression and work towards liberation, that is powerful. And I think really helps us to do that deep digging and to have a deeper well that grounds us when the suffering gets to be too much when we don't really see a way forward when we're like, Oh my God, there is no possible way that this can get any worse. Or I don't know how to get it better. Like (laughs) when it becomes so overwhelming, it's helpful to have those deep wells of strength and community and belonging to something bigger than ourselves to, to keep us going. I think actually that's been an interesting common thread with anyone that we've spoken to that's from a non sort of explicitly political community about just sort of the value of being in a community itself Mm -hmm. is part of the is part of the potential and part of the political potential of, you know, of any group of people. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about what kinds of actions you have either organized or participated in within church communities, religious communities, like, what does you know, I know you talked a little bit about kind of uh, changing culture and having conversations and things like that. But what kinds of activism do you actually participate in and and sort of what kinds of actions get organized within these religious communities and, and what do they look like? Yeah. In order to answer that question, we have to dig into sort of the origin story of Sacred. Perfect. Sacred is a fairly new organization out in the world, but the work has been happening uh, mostly online since early 2020 before the pandemic and it changed everything. But this work really grew out of Texas and having faith leaders, clergy who were ready, who were showing up at the legislative session and saying, yeah, I can show up and I can testify and I can say these law, these bills are good, these bills are bad, but that's not really going to change our culture. We need to do more than just engage a six-month legislative session once every two years. It's Texas's wild legislative cycle. And, and so what what lessons can we learn from other movements? And so we took this from the LGBTQ and faith movement. Uh, we've seen wild, like unprecedented levels of shift on that and really crediting the wins of marriage equality in 2015. Like that was so much faster than many of us anticipated it happening. We're crediting that to 
faith communities and religious traditions, having groups of people who are having these conversations and sharing their stories of, of what it means to be a gay person or to love a gay child, um, or to say my, my sister is trans, isn't that? And you welcomed them as a member of this congregation. How dare you shun them and cast them out now? So all of those kinds of things. And we can also recognize the massive amount of backlash to gay marriage winning and all the anti-trans bills that are going through now. So there's still lots of work to do. And the fact that all these Republicans are like, hey, we might be down with gay marriage. Like, (laughs) I live in red states. Like, yes, please, please continue to validate my marriage. I would love that. It just proves that these movements have been really successful. And so every religious tradition, every denomination has a particular organization, um, has a process for designating a congregation as like, yes, we're welcome and affirming, we're open and affirming, we're reconciling, we'll have our pride flag outside to to identify it as a safe space. And so the congregational designation program is like, okay, let's have that same kind of conversation, but around abortion access and reproductive justice. Let's tell our reproductive story and our faith story together, recognizing that they can't actually be separated. Let's create compassionate communities where people can bring their full stories without having to say, oh, but I can't, I can't tell that part of myself here. Especially when we think about our reproductive decisions, you know, I want someone to set up a meal train when someone has an abortion, just the same way you do when someone uh, gives birth. I want there to be uh, prayer shawls knit for someone experiencing infertility in the same way that someone going through cancer treatment um, gets that kind of community care from the congregation. Um, So that's sort of where we came from and what we're moving toward is that level of designation. And so it's educating folks. Um, We've got a seven session curriculum that we've just developed and are piloting out with um, some of our base right now and getting folks to have these conversations and really digging deep. And what does it mean to support reproductive justice and recognizing that your reproductive justice work cannot be separated from anti-racism work. And what are the, what are the true stories we have to tell about how, you know, we've got all this reproductive progress and on the backs of communities of color and women of color. And we've got to tell those truths in order to know what we're really saying and what we're standing up for when we go up, show up at rallies, testifying, all of those things. So we're doing some of that education work. We're really big on the education work right now and, and a lot of communications and media training and doing more advocacy with the media because we've got to change this narrative that doesn't represent us, that doesn't represent people of faith, doesn't represent clergy who want to provide compassionate care. (laughs) And there are just so many wild assumptions out there that are just incorrect. And so those are the main types of things that we are working on right now. Can you talk a little bit about media training? I know that part of what you've done is written on the and been on TV and stuff. So how, how does a person sort of get comfortable with that? And how do you help people understand, you know, sort of the, the value of it, but then the ability to, to do it? Yeah. I mean, the real key is to start with the inner work for clergy who, and any person who might be newer to this space, like, what is your own theology of abortion? 
what is your own theology of reproductive justice? And you have to sort of get comfortable with that in your own skin before you even are ready to put it in a newsletter article or to preach it from a pulpit or to give a teaching on it, much less before you go and write the op-ed and give TV interviews and everything. And, And there's so many, unfortunately, there's so many pitfalls that we can like the language that we use and the how do how does the shame judgment and stigma like weasel its way in and you don't you're not even aware you're like oh I am continuing to stigmatize abortion even though I that's not the intent so there's a lot of that homework that has to happen ahead of time and everyone has what they need to talk about faith and abortion everyone has a reproductive story even if you've never had kids. Everyone has a faith or religion story, even if you don't belong to a congregation, because it's just in the air that we breathe in this country. So you have the experience and you do know what it takes to to talk about it and to speak from your own experience and what are the messages you learned and what are the how did they help you and how did they harm you? And, and what are is the world, what does the world look like that you want to live in? If we root ourselves in that and recognize that we are enough and that we have enough, then we can start having those conversations and and be bold and be courageous. I'm curious because I know you mentioned earlier that a lot of our perception of what political faith-based communities looks like in this country is on the far right and is, you know, is engaged in work that's very different <laughs> than the work that you're engaged in and in opposition to it in a lot of con- uh, mm-hmm. a lot of contexts. I'm wondering how people can find progressive church communities and, you know, what they should look for if they're mm-hmm. interested in being a part of a community of faith of some sort. You know, are there red flags that they should look for or green flags that they should look for in terms of finding a, a church or some kind of, you know, religious community that suits their politics? That is a phenomenal question. And it's honestly sort of hard to figure <laughs> out. Yeah, the we're, we're reaching another breaking point in um, the ways that Christian nationalism is really taking over and and the ways that people are are continuing this project that started 40 years ago of using religion as a political tool to get more power more control more authority over women's bodies over queer bodies over people of color's bodies in a way that's really dangerous to our to our faith and to our country and to our politics there's a couple of, yeah, these like red flags and green flags. It's so great. I mean, that is the goal is that when you see a sacred sign at a church, you will know this is a green flag <laughs> for a congregation that's done their work. There are a lot of organizations and congregations that are doing that work already on LGBTQ equality issues. There's, a, you know, you can look for Black Lives Matter flags to or signs or see if they have statements. I mean, the main the main green flags are go to a website, go to someone's social media and see what their explicit statements are. There's really sneaky tactics that a lot of evangelical churches use wherein they're really vague and the answer will be, let's just go to coffee and talk about it. Like, we'll welcome you in, but oh, you're queer and you want to have a position of leadership? Mm, let's have coffee and talk about it. 
which is really just a bait and switch and people end up getting harmed. And there's so much religious trauma and abuse that happens in those spaces. And so ask those hard questions up front. And if there are any folks, congregational leaders listening to this, make sure that you're explicit of what your values are and what they aren't. And also make sure that you've actually done that work. There's a lot of harm that, you know, it's easy to put up a flag or a sign and it's harder to actually be able to welcome someone um, who looks different or is wearing different clothing or is holding hands with their partner. Yeah. It's, it's so sticky, <laughs> but that is the, that is the goal of organizations like sacred and so many other partners in this work. So I want to give you a chance to tell people how they can find more information about sacred, how they can uh, connect with, uh, with sacred, with social media. Yeah. So find out more information at our website, sacreddignity.org. And you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at sacred underscore repro. And on Facebook, we're just sacred repro. But check out all of our social media pages. We've got lots of little good nuggets of in terms of like, how do we talk about these things? What are some key phrases? We like to put those out there. Excellent. Yeah. Are there, is there anything else that you wanted to make sure that we talk about? I just want to remind folks that they do have what it takes to have these courageous conversations and and that to turn inward and do that inner work is just as much taking action as it is to sign a petition and, you know, post on Instagram that you're taking this action And, and that there's so much of the work that can start in Gregory Ellison is a pastoral care professor at Candler School of Theology in Atlanta. And he talks about starting with the three feet around you. Who's in the three feet around you that you can start having conversations with and start making change? Because as big as these problems are, our solutions have to start small and they grow from there and they can grow exponentially. And that's how we build the power, but we can start really small. I love that. Thank you so much for joining us. This was really great. And I think should give people a lot of great ideas about sort of thinking more expansively about activism and advocacy and what that looks like. Thank you so much. It was a delight to be with y'all. Thank you. Thanks for listening to What Can I Do? You can find show notes and credits for this episode at whatcanidopodcast.com. To the best of our knowledge, all audio used by What Can I Do is in the public domain or used with permission. Original artwork is by Matthew Wefflin and used with express permission. You can find us on Twitter at What Can I Do Pod. To contact us with questions or guest suggestions, please email hello at whatcanidopodcast.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and review and tell your friends. Justice.